So this is a nice song of Bhaktivinoda Thakur. He was saying it's um, really a form of what we call Nam Kirtan. And uh, I believe that song isn't even named, perhaps Nam Kirtan. But Nam Kirtan is a particular expression of uh, devotion. Nam means name. And Kirtan means, from the verbal Sanskrit root, Kirti is fame. So Kirtan means to like, give fame or to, to glorify. Hmm? And uh, characteristically, it, such uh, glorification is done in, uh, in song, hmm? uh, aloud. And um, so, Nam Kirtan means a, 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 a glorification, if you will, of, of name. And the name here, of course, is, this refers to the divine Logos that practically every um, every um, spiritual tradition, um, with different uh, terminology and cultural sensibilities, holds um, well sacred. Really, the name representing divinity in the Bible. It's I believe I don't know maybe it's. Old Testament, or in the beginning there was the, maybe that's the New Testament, I don't know. Was the Word, and the Word was one, or something like that. So it's a similar idea. And of course, in the New Testament, I believe, um, not really a student of that, but that text, but I believe there are a number of places in which the virtues of extolling the name of the Christ are. emphasized and so forth. Um, so there we have a particular example in a tradition other than ours where the name is held sacred. And if you go to the staying within the Abrahamic uh, religious framework for a moment, if we go to Islam, for example, um, we find also the same idea. I believe they have 99 names of Allah and they chant them on beads. In Christianity, you have the rosary that used to be. As I was a kid, as a Catholic, so we 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 learned chant on the rosary. So these are some overlapping crossovers culturally, um, in which uh, divinity is expressed um, through chanting. We chant the name on beads. Hmm. It's called japa, and in kirtan, aloud as we just have and. Um, in the in the, in the Islamic tradition, as I say, there the name of God is also thought to be hallowed. Back to Christianity for a minute. Hallowed be Thy name. I remember that one. So in the then in the Jewish faith, also we, there is the idea that uh, the name of God is too sacred to utter. So a literal type of interpretation of that would find other religious traditions uttering the name of God to be offensive or something like that. But I think really the spirit of the injunction is one that is in concert with the other traditions, which basically says the name of God is sacred hmm? and ineffable, I believe, would be the idea there. Um, 
that it's it, it cannot be divinity cannot be captured in language, and we would agree with that. We have a statement in the sutras of Vedanta um, along these lines: na ashabdat," and it's um, understood in different ways by different uh, traditions within. Uh, Vedanta within Hinduism, Vedanta is the, the kind of the spiritual, experiential um, side of Hinduism, and I think all religious traditions really have both a religious orientation and a spiritual, experiential, or mystic orientation. Not a belief, if you will, <coughs> in something that's going to happen, but in the pursuit of what's happening now. Um, and and to experience from a spiritual perspective the uh, the nature of being in reality. So there, at any rate, in the sutras, um, it's it's mentioned that that the absolute is beyond uh, sound, beyond mind. So beyond thought, we're pursuing something beyond thought and beyond language. So it doesn't lend itself very well to being captured within language and sound. So one way to think about that is that the absolute nature of such is that it's ineffable, ineffable and there's nothing we can say. So some traditions within Hinduism, within Vedanta, they understand that, 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 that sutra in that way and then they think there's nothing that you can say about the absolute, you can say about what the absolute is not. Hmm? Um, it's not this and it's not that. It's not this and that. I mean, it's not anything of the world that's here today and gone tomorrow. Hmm? It's of an enduring nature. Hmm? And things come and go, and so do thoughts. Hmm? So it is beyond... And things can be described, to some extent, with language. Hmm? Um, and so they tend to speak about the absolute in a, in, a, in a negative way, but it's a positive negative. It's not this and it's not that. It's, it's more than this. It's more than that. It's more than thought. It's more than language. It's, it's, it's more than things. The best things in life are not things. Um, in our tradition, we, we look at it a little more, uh, a little differently. Uh, we agree with that, but we interpret the sutra to be saying the nature of the absolute is that you cannot say enough about it. So there's a place for speaking about it and, 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 and putting it in, in, into sound and it, trying to uh, um, bring attention to that, put our attention on that. And sound is a powerful means. And in words, often what we think about is what we talk about. Hmm? And if we're talking about it, we'd probably think about it. <laughs> so we have to sometimes think about what we're talking about to talk about it. So, uh, so there's a place for acknowledging that the absolute is ineffable. At the same time, we have a tongue, so it should be used. And we could use it to say it's not this or it's not that. Um, but that speaks about a kind of an undifferentiated qualityless absolute and the sacred texts speak of many qualities of of uh, of uh, divinity and 
you know, for many names that have positive content. And you have them in different traditions, you know, whatever. Allah means the Great One, Buddha, the Enlightened One. and Certainly God, if you will, the Absolute is enlightened and, uh, and um, so on and so forth. So there are a number of names like this that we find cross-culturally. Um, uh, again, the Enlightened One, the Almighty One, the, the, the Source, the, the Creator, and so on and so forth. These are um, arguably sound, so in our vocabulary, um, that um, words that, that speak in a positive way about um, the Absolute while not fully capturing at the same time. Now, in the Nam Kirtan that we've just engaged in, we these are all different names that uh, glorify God. In our tradition, this idea that the the absolute is represented in sound to some extent, and that's a very, that's the most powerful medium in which the the Godhead is represented in the world and can be approached and experienced hmm, through the sound. Um, we differentiate between names that we would call secondary names of God and primary names of God. While I'm speaking about a, what we might call a nam-dharma, a dharma or a, 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 um, a um, what would you, in this context, how would you translate dharma? In a, 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 a worldview and a, a, a hmm? Path, okay, path, centered on, on, on the divine logos, on the name. Hmm. And so we, while I'm saying different traditions all acknowledge this, in our tradition we've kind of like um, centered on something that's universal within the religious world, the spiritual context, and it extends also into the secular world to an extent where we find, especially in our times, that if you go to the streets and chant and so forth on Washington, converge, you can, you can make change and so forth. You can bring down the, uh, the, uh, the Berlin Wall, you know, and, and so on and so forth. So um, it's a principle that is, I'm not talking about something that we don't believe in, that we, don't, we already do, we already accept. I'm just trying to hone it and see where it can take us. And um, so from, from the secular fact that sound has efficacy and power to bring about change, and dramatic change and so forth, to from a secular perspective to a spiritual perspective, arguably sound has power also to bring about a change, a transformation, and um, and new uh, open us to new uh, horizons and so forth. And so again, this is accepted in all the traditions. And so we've taken this and we've in our tradition and and made it the center focus. So it's something that's accepted everywhere. Hmm? to one extent or another. We're just, as I say, trying to hone that and see, well, where can that take us ultimately? And so in the context of that, in our tradition, we've come to differentiate between, and this is a lineage of in a long, long time, uh, centuries and centuries, with efficacy, with persons who have become um, arguably uh, attained real direct experience of transcendence hmm, through this... Um, uh, Nam Dharma, or the 
the, the kirtan, nam kirtan, um, our primary practice. So within that, they've made a differentiation, our teachers over, over centuries, uh, between general, I want to say, or secondary names of, of the Godhead and primary names. The secondary names are names like Creator, Enlightened One, um, Almighty. Hmm. Um, they tend to speak to us about the Godhead in relation to the world that we live in. Hmm. That's why we call them secondary names. Because when we speak, when we invoke those names generally, the focus is more on ourselves than it is on the Godhead, Creator. He created the world which we live in, which is our world, and it's all about me. <laughs> it's kind of how we conduct ourselves often, unfortunately. And so we may acknowledge a Creator who created the world, and the world's ours. He's not here, or she, right? at least we're not seeing it. It's like, there it is, it's created for us. And, and so... It was it was even thought in Western um, development of philosophy and and theology with the ingress of science, and so forth, blessed by the Catholic Church at one point, which became a nemesis of the Church, as it began to investigate the world and in, in, in the way that it does through the controlled experiment, became the idea that the world is it's a, it's a false idea, I believe. I don't think it's not it's a it's a theory. It's not something that's verifiable, but the idea, it's prominent idea still today, although it, there's some change with regard to that, that the, that the world is a closed system. In other words, that things work, forces, there are forces, physical forces in the world, and there's nothing, and it's all complete in itself. There's nothing from outside that influences it to make it work. Hmm? And so, that you, there's, there, given that, the idea of God reaching in and performing miracles and so forth started to become like unpopular. Hmm? This is like the time of Newton and, and so forth. And so we find um, people in the scientific community who were, who were in the Western world who were Christian gravitating towards something called deism. Deism was, the, was the, basically the idea that there's a God set the world up like a clock and it's going on and he's not involved. Hmm? So somebody created, but he's not involved anymore because there's no, no place to get involved. We, we can't, if he was involved, we would be able to see it, measure it. What's hmm? <laughs> the thinking? You can't measure it, then it must not be there. That means if you can't control it, it must not be there. But that's contradictory to the whole theistic idea. God won't show up in the controlled experiment because it's a contradictory you know, concept. Hmm. You understand? If, he, if, he, if he's the controller, then he's not going to show up. In the, we think we're the controller, and we're making, and he's supposed to show up there. And if we can't measure him, then we this is a, not a very good idea. <laughs> so, um, so at any rate, the the, the 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 names of God in relation to this world we would call secondary names, and they kind of put God in the background a bit. Um, and the main stage is here, and God's not that, that present. Maybe you know, you're going to go there where God is, some people think, after you die or something like that. 
but what that's like or what, who knows, and a lot of people don't care. Um, there's not a lot of information. Now, in our tradition, there's, from our experiencers, there's a lot of information. It's, it's really kind of where the tradition excels. And so we have these primary names of God as opposed to secondary names of God. What we were seeing today were all primary names of God. These names of God, they describe the nature of the Absolute, so to speak, in his own circle. Hmm. In other words, it's something like this. Let us say I was an artist. Some of you are artists, perhaps. I think you're living in an art co-op or something like that. You still are, perhaps. So let's say I'm an artist. Let's say I'm a painter. And so let's say I have an easel here, right? Easel is called? In the canvas, and I'm painting. And let's say I have another one over here that I use to clean my brush on, and then I dip in another paint, and I make the actual picture, and then over here I'm like this, and then again, right? Hmm. So from our perspective, this canvas over here, that's the world we live in. It's just like, he's kind of like wiping the brush over here. But his own preoccupation, hmm, the Godhead, is in, and this is another realm, so to speak. And it's like, like hmm, the play of God, so to speak. I've, I've described before the idea, or explained the idea, that if God is all-knowing, if there's an all-knowing mind, let's say, consciousness, an all-knowing consciousness, that we could, you know, tap into and thereby know, let's say, then that sounds pretty cool. <laughs> but um, it presents a problem at the same time because if an entity is all-knowing, the problem that arises is that the entity can't do anything, really. If you know everything, the impetus to do anything is, is, is destroyed. I know everything. I know what's going to happen. Imagine if you knew it was going to happen at every moment. What would you do? I mean, I mean, you, you would be kind of frozen. It would be boring. You know everything that's going to happen. So omniscience, from our ignorant perspective, as desirable as it sounds, it can be argued that it has its limitations as well. And so the idea in our tradition is that omniscience solves the problem, being all-knowing, of knowing everything (laughs) by way of playing. In other words, if you're bored, what do you do? Then you play. If you're bored with the reality, then you create and you play. Hmm? Um, So... There's something we call lila. It's defined literally as play, the play of the Godhead. So the all-knowing Godhead turns from all-knowing to, to a kind of um, divine ignorance, which is then play. And there's, a, and there's a realm in which the all-knowing is playing and it gets lost in the playing and really doesn't know, in a sense, but knows more. Than, in, than as the omniscient, because in that playing, there is more um, uh, joy, because there's a purpose to knowing. 
The purpose is to know how to act so that I can be happy. We don't just get knowledge for no reason. We, we want to apply it. And really, we're in the pursuit of perfect happiness. We get knowledge to inform action by which we can become perfectly happy. So, so we depict the Godhead as playing. And playing with whom, then? Playing with those that are interested in that canvas. Not this canvas uh, as much as that canvas. And looking at this canvas here, the, the secondary one, from the perspective of the other one. In other words, God has a life. Hmm? We're not interested mostly in the life of God, or if we are, we're interested in, interested in, only interested in a God that's alive that will help me in, my, in, in, in things that I do. That's not very interesting to God, arguably. You understand? I mean, <laughs> so he's there. Who's interested in me? They want liberation, salvation, take it. They want things, more money, better house, bread on the table, take it. What does that have to do with, you know, with me, with my... Who? So, so the inner world, if you will, of the Godhead is with where the Godhead is playing, but with whom? With those who are not interested in things... Neither in in in, in being uh, saved from things. Hmm? In other words, things are a problem. We want things, but they're a problem. Hmm? The problem with things—I'm just using it a very crude, speaking in a crude sense—but the problem with things is we can't keep them. So the more we want them, the more problematic they are. Hmm? You understand? If you like something, well, you have to deal with the fact that you can't keep it. So there's a problem. <laughs> it's a problem to get the thing, and and you're going to lose it in due course. And our life is, materially speaking, largely made up of trying to get things and then trying to deal with the fact that we don't have them anymore or that we don't want them anymore because they don't turn out to be what they, we thought they would be. So, and these things and the pursuit of things is at the cost of ourself because we're not a thing. We experience things. We attribute value to things. I mean, what's this thing? It's a chair, it's a seat. But that's just an idea. You understand? And it's a conscious idea. It's a seat. Otherwise, without consciousness, the things have no... They don't matter. Matter doesn't matter. Hmm? If nobody's mattering about it, this idea. So we are the the matterers. We are consciousness. Hmm? And so the pursuit of things is is not in our interest. Hmm? Only they are. That is, I should say, to the extent that we need some things in order to pursue the more that we are. So that's useful. We need to eat, we need a little shelter and so forth. Hmm? Enough that we can have, uh, we, uh, we, can, we can pursue what we really are. Hmm? Just to think that by adding more things to our life, our life will become more meaningful is not, not, not true. And you can ask the people who have everything. They have sometimes 
are the most troubled, right? So, the pursuit of things, and most people have a religious orientation in that way for things. This is, I mean, to ask God for things is like, you know, there you were, you, 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 you met the emperor, you could have asked him for anything, and you asked for some ashes, you know. Okay, I could have given you a kingdom, you know, something like that. So, not very bright. And, it, and, it, and again, the pursuit of things is at the cost of yourself. Because when we identify with things, with matter, as ours, and identity forms, you follow me? If I think this is mine, that my has a corresponding I, that my creates an I, my country. Therefore, I am American. Hmm. Just to give you one, one example, you think of all of your mys, and then that defines you. If I say, oh, I know Craig, uh, he's the, he has this, he has that, he, he, he does this, and the things that he does, and his, his, uh, that he's attached to, his things, his mys, that's him. Hmm? Um, so, the problem, of course, is we don't own anything. Nothing belongs to us. So the identity that arises out of my is a false and unsustainable I. Mm-hmm. And so we get caught up in this false sense of my and the I that goes with it, and the real self is obscured. So some people can see through this, so they pursue the spiritual life thoughtfully. And they don't want things. They want to get away from things. So some people approach God for things, and some people approach God to get away from things and close to themselves. Hmm? But each of these pursuits is self-centered. Even the latter one, which is obviously progressive, is still somewhat self-centered. One person wants things. One person wants to get away from things. Hmm? They're both worldly-centered, I want the world. The other one was, I want to get out of the world. The world is the center. So there are whole disciplines, of course, religious ideas for getting things and spiritual pursuits for getting away from things, but they're both positively, if you will, and negatively uh, worldly-centered. And interestingly, the negative one is more positive than the positive one. In other words, wanting things, which is a positive, is a big negative. Wanting to get free from things, which is a negative, is more positive. But each, in an overarching sense, are negative in that they're focused on this world. Getting away from it or acquiring it. Knowing it, we could say. Having it or knowing it. You realize you can't have it, so you seek to know it. And knowing is a kind of having also. I understood it. Now I, 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 I want to know the world. I want to know the, the futility of, of things, thinking I own them and the problems that come with that. And I want to pursue detachment, renunciation, and so forth. It's a kind of, a kind of a subtle attempt to control the world. The gross attempt, you try to control it by getting things and power and getting ahead and, and whatever. Hmm? And then suddenly people try to, well, that's, that's a failure. That's futile, obviously. 
Uh, so we try to control it in another way by understanding it subtly. And, and indeed, if you renounce the world, the world will come to you. People think, wow, he just lives in the forest and eats leaves as they fall from trees. I don't see that guy. Yeah, that's cool. The, the world will come. Hmm? You go find some guys meditating under a tree and there's people find him and people will come, they'll set up a whole tour shop there and come and see him, you know, pay someone and there he is meditating. So, tiag results in bog and bog results in tiag. These are two terms. Bog means to enjoy, tiag means to renounce. If you pursue enjoyment of things, you'll, moving to the right, let's say, you'll end up on the left because the things don't satisfy you. Yeah, I want to get rid of the things now. Hmm? If you move the other side for tiag, for renunciation, the things will come to you. Hmm? you the world will fall at your feet. So both are attempts to control the world. You understand? In a gross way, in a subtle way. Hmm? But the fact of the matter is, there's already the creator, if you will, the God. It's not us. Hmm? We have a role to play as a conscious entity animating things, so to speak. But we're also bewildered and have to come out from underneath the bewilderment to one extent or another, which is evidence that, well, we're not the whole show. Hmm? Um, if we need to be enlightened, then we make the poor kind of excuse for, for a God <laughs> um, unto ourselves. We may be God-like in our essence and so forth, but we're small. We're like maybe a spark from the fire. And the spark can go out of the fire. It can't, you can't cook with it. Hmm? It doesn't give you much light. Hmm? Fire is just spark, but it's, it's, you can cook with it, which is huge. You can get warmth from it. You can get light from it. What can you get from a spark? So as much as we might be like God as a spark, there's a huge difference between a spark and a fire. There's a oneness, and there's a difference. We can talk about it from both perspectives. We can say there's nothing in the world that's more like God than us. Consciousness. We're consciousness. God is consciousness, not, a, not, not matter, not an unconscious reality, an unknowing reality. Hmm? A, an unloving reality. Matter doesn't think, know, or love. Hmm? We think we know how to love. <laughs> well, we don't, but we, we, should, we should learn the art hmm? because we have the capacity to love. Hmm? Uh, so we're a unit of being, knowing, and loving. Hmm? But the Godhead is the whole, the, 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 like the, the whole, or the spark of it, either the fire of it. So, we could say that there's nothing in the world more like God than us, but then we have to qualify that. At the same time, we're very different from God also. We could say maybe we're qualitatively similar, but quantitatively different, like the spark and the fire. So, so as subtle as it may be, any attempt to control the world, even through spiritual exercise of renunciation, giving up things, and so forth, uh, for example... Um, these are worldly-centered, and they are attempts to um, compete, if you will, with uh, someone you know who really you can't beat, so you should join them. There's an English saying, if you can't beat them, join them. So this is our tradition is about joining the fire, hmm, if you will, 
And in that fire is, I mean, I gave the example, spark in the fire. So if you take a spark like ourselves, we have a life here in relation to the world. It seems meaningful and full of so many things. It's a, what do we think? The source is just sitting there just doing nothing? Hmm? Just knowing? No. We, we think it's more animated so that, so that there's... So as we go into consciousness that we are a spark of, away from the world, we're like a, like, like, like a sleep. In our sleep, the world is going on. It's that canvas I said over here like this. It's, it's fascinating. Hmm? We're asleep to our own, own potential. This is what we do in our sleep. The world, hmm? as we, we know it, sensually, intellectually, mentally. We're doing that. We're asleep to what we really are. And we're the driving force. We're consciousness, giving meaning and shape to matter and so on and so forth. Hmm? But we're doing it in our sleep. So now, what if you're awake? Hmm? And awake means to know your source. And to be united with that source. What goes on in the source? How much more fantastic that original, you know, the, the actual canvas of the painter. I would say an example of there's a painter and he's got two easels. One of them he's just using to wipe his brush off to get a new paint. The other one he's painting a picture. The picture he's painting is kind of the spiritual world of Leela. The other one is like the material world. It's like, okay. And like that. by breathing the sparks of, so to speak, life, of consciousness into the world, that we are, the world is animated and alive and so forth, but it's kind of taken over our lives and fascinating as it is, as I say, it's something we're doing in an unenlightened condition. What, would our, what will our enlightened condition be? Just to be still? Well, that would be positive compared to the movement we're doing now, <laughs> which is kind of like, a, 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 it's not a nice example, but like, forgive me for lack of a better one, like a chicken with his head cut off, you know, just runs around. Movement is there, but <laughs> it's got no head. And it's just going to die. Hmm? The world, something like that. Hmm? Seems more well thought out to some extent, but all the theories change. <laughs> all the sensibilities change. And, and uh, so on and so forth. So... Um, it's a world of unknowing, really in pursuit of knowing, in an attempt to, to, to rectify, uh, to, to reconcile contradictions. It just is a, just is a world of contradiction. Effort is constantly, an, a, a, a constant effort to reconcile contradictions. Hmm? You just read the news, right? That's all that's going on, trying to reconcile contradictions. Hmm? That's why we say to resolve the situation requires a transrational method because these contradictions are rationally contradictory and difficult to reconcile. Hmm? Could be looked at this way. It could be looked at that way. Hmm? And again this way. And again that way. Hmm? And if you were to take two stones of thought, frozen ideas, I believe this, I think that, and you were to rub them together, hmm? In a debate, you would just get finer and finer and finer pieces, more and more subtle 
Uh, so, so that we have a transrational method. This nam kirtan we're talking about is a transrational method. It's not irrational to chant, but it's not a rational exercise. It's a transrational exercise. It picks up where reason leaves off. It it, it leaves. A, it it comes to the. It begins with the conclusion that the rational mind will never solve the problem of how to be happy, fully happy and fully peaceful. You know, the Middle East crisis has been going on for centuries. If it's not, you know, and there's there's a Middle East crisis going on in the Middle West, and the Middle South, and the Middle North, and the Northwest, Southwest, East West, and so everywhere in between, it's just conflict and discord and, and ir- irresolvable difference. And it's just not quite, you know, you get together, it's just pretty good, <laughs> you know. But there are just problems over here, and it's just slightly over there, and... Could you change a little this way? And could you change? It's just never quite the right. Because we are consciousness, and we're trying to work within matter, like a fish. We're on the shore, hmm? flapping around, and every now and then you get a little rain or something like that. It's like maybe it's, you know. So you got to get in the water, hmm? so to speak. We have to go within consciousness, which is what we are, which means we have to dissolve the whole of mental constructs that we have. Hmm? It's a very tall challenge, but this name chanting is very powerful, especially, as I'm explaining, if we chant these uh, primary names that speak about the world of the Godhead, the fire itself, and what's going on there. Hmm? The interaction between the Godhead and those that are not interested in getting things from God, neither in getting away from things, hmm? but in another sense, doing things for God. Hmm? When you do things, it's not like having a thing, <laughs> doing something. But is that loving? Because, hmm? you know, what does God need? Nothing. Hmm? But then again, If God is all loving, then it requires two. Hmm. There have to be those willing to love, and love means that I'm interested in what you're about, not what you, not about what you can do for me, but what I can do for you. Hmm. Right. Hmm. So that play, the leela of God, is going on with transcendentalists who have. A who have pursued this type of this idea, this bhakti means devotion, love for its own sake, centered on the Godhead. And then there are names of the Godhead that describe that interplay that is Leela. They're very powerful names. The name Creator, Enlightened, Buddha, they have some power. Hmm? But they're secondary names. They're not there's something that God does, you know, like this over here. This canvas, like I explained, hmm? meanwhile he's painting this other. Whatever he wants happens in that in, in that in that realm, so to speak. Hmm? It's a big subject. I'm just kind of speaking about it in a general way. And those names that speak about that, they're speaking about that which is which is the preoccupation of the omniscient in its play. Hmm? And so. 
you can understand that if if you if you want to get the attention of someone, you're interested in what they're interested in. Welcome. Then that's a good way to get their attention. Hmm? If you're interested in what they have and you might be able to get from them, like, oh, okay, I want something. All right, you know. But if you're not interested in that, indeed, if you're interested in the things that are dear to me, hmm, however insignificant that might be. And say if you if if you if you love someone's dog, they could go oh they, they start to like you, hmm? because they love their dog. Hmm? So you like their dog, they start to like you. Very natural. Hmm? So these anyway these we're kind of coming to the conclusion here. The names that were chanted there all these these were all a number. There are many of them, of course, primary names that speak about the Godhead in the realm of the Godhead's own own play, which is beyond a kind of a knowing, an unknowing knowing, a play that makes omniscience look like less knowing because it's less fulfilling. Hmm? Again, if you know everything, it can be boring. But if you if you if you play, and the play is all the interplay of of, of bhakti of love between the devotee and the Godhead. So when we sing names of God that describe that, God is that's that's gets the attention of the Godhead. Hmm? Whereas if we approach the Godhead for things, as I said earlier, or for getting away from things, these are just two ways of saying I want to be the controller. How attractive is that? If you're the controller, if I'm the controller of everything, and you say to me, I want to be the controller. In other words, I want to get enough things. That I, so basically, the acquisition of material life is much about is an attempt to control hmm, the world. Hmm. And again, to give up things and think to keep having things is a problem. Hmm. I'm not a thing. Hmm. This is also an attempt to control the world. It's not, there's no bhakti in it. There's no love in it. It's self-centered. The world's a problem. I want to get it under my control. If you control your mind and senses, you can control the world because that's what the world is. <laughs> People under the influence of their mind and senses. Did you ever do something that you thought with your mind was not good for you? Ever? Does it happen sometimes? Every you know blue moon? Or does it happen every hour? <laughs> Every every waking minute, or you know, to a lot, this is a problem. Hmm? Hmm? So to come out from underneath the oppression of the mind and the senses that are pulling us in different directions is to control the world. Hmm? It's to be above the world. These are the kings, really, in 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 the Vedanta. The real, you know, who, they may have nothing, hmm? but they've controlled the mind and senses. But Again, there's no bhakti in that. You could be a big yogi, control your mind and senses. But what we're talking about, loving Krishna, for example, automatically in the context of that, the mind and the senses will be controlled. Because if you love someone, then you think only of them. And with your senses, you act only for them. And if that person you love is God, then your mind and senses are controlled. Hmm? 
they're not using you, hmm? but you're using them in the service of God, and you're coming out from underneath the predicament. You see, to control the mind and senses, that's pretty formidable. If I tell you the problem is, the, the reason that you don't know is because you think. Thinking is getting in the way of, you know, of your knowing. Because hmm? you are a unit of knowing. It's not because you have a mind you can know. It's not because you have eyes you can see. Eyes don't see. I see. Limited in a limited way through my eyes. I hear in a limited way through my ears. If I could be free from the ears and the eyes and the thoughts, what would I know? What would I see? What would I hear? Hmm? I mean, we can demonstrate it. You hear one thing, you hear another thing. We're all in the same room. We all see different things. We go out here and some person, I didn't see that, you're talking about that. The person that stuck out, it was really really important, right? Hmm? We see, some people think, feel, let's take feeling, the tactile sense. Some people think, it's hot in here. It's a little warm in here. Some people think, it's a little cool in here. Which is it? You understand? These, these, the tactile sense is getting in the way of us understanding definitively what is the nature of the experience of, 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 of you're, getting, you're getting a filtered experience through the senses, through the mind. Hmm? So, nonetheless, we have them. So if I tell you, okay, stop using your senses, they're getting in your way. Stop using your mind, stop thinking, because that's getting in the way of your knowing. And when you get in the way of your, your knowing, it's not very insightful, then your action that is informed by limited knowing is going to be a limited action that's going to produce only a limited amount of fulfillment and happiness. So a problem. Mm-hmm. But now if I say go home and stop thinking... Well, it would be difficult to do. But if I say, think about the things we're talking about, hmm? that's not so hard. Hmm? I've occupied your minds for a moment, for an hour, with, with spiritual thoughts. Hmm? In a theoretical, philosophical sense. Hmm? Now we also occupied our senses with the hearing, for example, of the chanting, or the chanting, if we chanted along. We used our tongue, we used our ears. We didn't stop talking, we didn't stop hearing, but we used our ears and our tongue and our, our, our minds. Those who knew the words, their minds were taken to the meaning and the leelas that correspond with the different names and by the power of the name, they were transported to some extent into the world hmm? of the primary canvas, hmm? invisibly, hmm? internally, subjectively, and so forth. So this is very easily easy compared to just stop thinking, stop talking. When I was young, when I was 21 or 22, I took a vow to stop talking. Because hmm? I thought everybody's just talking to hear themselves talk. That's what it's really all about. I thought, I'm not into that. I stopped talking. Then I found a pack of incense that said, chant this mantra 
your life will be sublime. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, Ram Ram, Hare Hare. So I used to chant it in my mind. Hmm. Then out loud, and you know, here we are. I'm here. That's <laughs> how so I got here. So, so, this is very, I want to say, on the one hand, very user-friendly approach to controlling the mind and the senses. But it's a very loving approach to the Godhead at the same time. So by loving God in the context of bhakti, the primary method of which is this nam kirtan, for example, automatically the mind and the senses are controlled, so we rise above the world. But we don't think that we're the controller of it either, even though we've risen above it. We've met the actual controller, and so we've got something to do hmm? in transcendence that that's, constitutes ananda, bliss. Bliss is not just stopping suffering. That's part of it. And giving is not just stopping from taking. So if I t- stop taking things, am I a giver? You're not a taker, but you're not a giver. So if you're not a giver, you're just a non-taker, are you a lover? Obviously not. Hmm? Love is about giving. So the, this, this, the, the atma, the self, is a unit of being, knowing, and loving. If its potential for loving, for ananda, for bliss is to be realized, then it has to become a giver. And there, may, there must be someone to give to. Hmm? This idea. And automatically, you will have things. You can give up things this way and have things. Because whatever you have, you will use in, 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 in the service of Krishna. Hmm? So you can have things, and they aren't a problem. It's like you had a serpent, but you took the poison out of his fangs. Not a problem. You see those guys there? Got the snakes around them and stuff like that. <laughs> Not my thing, but um, like you know, the charmer. Um, so you can have you can have things, no problem, and you can have, and, and you can, and again you can be away from them at the same time. Hmm? So this is a little bit what the chanting that we began our session with tonight is about. Any question? I haven't seen you in so long. It's, uh, you've come. You come from Grass Valley? Uh, from Berkeley. You're back in Berkeley. Okay. That's where you guys live, right? In Berkeley? Oakland. Okay. Yes, go cool. Um, the uh, primary names are in some way different than uh, secondary names, but are the different results changing someone's changing uh, secondary names. By secondary names, you can get things. Or you can get away from things. Brahman. Hmm. It's, 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 it's about basically about those two things. Getting things or getting away from things. Hmm. For the most part. Hmm. By primary names, Mahaprabhu said, Nam Nama Kari Bhuda Nija Sarva Shakti. There are many primary names and they're Sarva Shakti. They're filled with Shakti, with power, spiritual power. Hmm great efficacy they have. Mm. So, anything else? Yes. I have a question that's unrelated to election. What is it? I'm curious about the Shunya Day prayers. Uh, I haven't heard them 
son in this ashram as part of the daily program. I'm just curious as to why not. Well, we have a deity of Nishinga on our altar. Um, and we used to chant um, some different uh, prayers to Narasimha. Um, those were composed by Bhaktivinoda Thakur, uh, speaking of Nishinga and his appearance in Navadweep and petitioning him to remove Anarthas in order to attain Prem. Hmm. Very nice prayers. Um, But at, at some point, we, we changed the liturgy um, in consideration of services, certain services that needed to be attended to in a timely fashion. And it, they were, it was not reinstituted, so it's good that you bring it up. Maybe we should reinstitute them. Now, in um, another sect that you're f- familiar with, they sing another set of prayers, and... Um, these prayers, um, there are two parts to them. One part was sung by Mahaprabhu in the temple in Jagannath Puri when he came before the Jagannath deity, or the the, uh, the Nishinga deity there. And the other one, it comes from a book uh, called Gita Govinda, of Jayadev Goswami. Those are very nice prayers there as well that speak about Narasimha, this particular avatar, of Krishna in a, with regard to his leela and with regard to the fact that he is an avatar of the avatari who is Krishna. Keshavadrita Narahari Rupa Jaya Jagadishari. It says Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam. Hmm. That's the chorus, if you want to translate it. You know what Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam means? It means Krishna is the fountainhead of all manifestations of divinity. So while speaking about Nishringa, that particular manifestation of divinity, it also says, and he's the part of the source, and something like that. So, I mean, those are nice nice prayers. We're not against it, though. Hmm. We're not against it. Uh, but um, we do offer him sweet rice occasionally, and that's said to be his favorite food. <laughs> but I'll give that some thought. There's some very nice prayers of Bhakti Vinod that we... We should probably re- reincorporate that uh, that speak very much about the Shring in the context of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. He's a prominent deity in Gaudiya Vaishnavism. Mm-hmm. Actually, he is. Um, there are three faces of divinity that are said to be Sadaishvarya Purna, full of six opulences: Krishna, Ramchandra, and Narasimha. Of course, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. That's what he's Krishna, so that doesn't count. Himself. So, so uh, not much to be said. Come in the springtime, we'll have a festival for the Shinga Chaturdasi. I speak from the Prahlad Charit of Bhagavatam. Either here or maybe I'll be in Saragrahi at the time. So, all right. Nice to sit with all of you and to meet some of you and hope we meet again. Sri Sri Gornatanda Ki Jai. Gurivasna Guru Parampara Ki Jai. <laughs>